Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 27. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. I believe this is going to be our finest hour. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. This is Watchman Alexander. And this is Terry Arnold. Coming to you for episode number 27 of Searching the Scriptures. And today we're going to keep going with laying the foundations. We left off in Genesis chapter 2 verse uh, 15, I believe, and we're going to pick up from there and go on into the early parts of chapter three. So we're probably not going to get very far, but that's because there's plenty to talk about. I mean, and I, I'm known for talking too much. You have to stop me, Alex, when I get off the rails, man. <laughs> Hardly. I'm the one that probably talks too much. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. You know, if we, if the spirit moves us and we go a little bit longer than we thought, it's all right. Nobody's <laughs> going to sue us. No, nah, they just might stop listening. <laughs> they might, but they do that anyway. <laughs> true, <laughs> true, true. The stats, you know, I see all of the numbers. Uh-huh. People get about uh, 20 to 50 percent of the way through a video or a, a podcast, and then they stop usually. <laughs> but I know I have some hardcore fans. You know, thank you to you guys because uh, there are some that listen through the entire thing uh, consistently, and almost every episode, I get some of the same people. Um, I can't see exactly who it is that's listening to what episodes, but uh, but I can tell, you know, general areas of the world that people are listening from. Uh, yeah. and I can see how much they're listening to. So that's pretty awesome uh, that, that some of you guys are, are dedicated. So I appreciate that. Some of those dots on the map are just on our own houses. It's like people at our house. Oh, who am I kidding? My wife doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't seen a dot from your house. No, it, it doesn't give me specific locations like that. Don't worry, guys. Oh, man. Um, okay, verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, Yahweh Elohim took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That's the W-E-B translation. Other translations say to tend and to keep it. Mm-hmm. Right out of the gate here, I want to talk about the Hebrew because the word for tend is avad and then the word for keep is shamar and those both have important implications i think oh yeah big yeah. time uh, and and jump right in here if you uh, are familiar with this but the word avad or tend um actually it's a avadah i think um, yeah. the root yeah. avad, but that is know, right. i'm not a hebrew scholar so pardon me if i'm getting that wrong but uh the meaning of it is labor or bondage even and uh, in the Torah, later on, we see this word being used for worship. It's uh, worship in the temple usually is translated or is usually um, 
described as uh, avodah, and I'm sure that there's some kind of conjugation there that I don't know how to do, but uh, avodah <laughs> mishkan, uh, mishkan being the temple. So yeah. service or work in the temple um, is the same word that we're seeing here in Genesis 2.15. Yeah, I like uh, I like the word serve there. So this is one of those times where you have a Hebrew word that is both a verb and a noun when you switch it around. So the the noun form of it is avodah, so service, and then to avod that's uh, to serve. I don't know if, if that's the exact pronunciation of the, of the verb form, but that's what you got there. It's ser- he's serving the garden. So what I think of in in terms of its relation to this whole series is worship is actually work of some kind. It's active. It's not a passive thing. Now, that's not to say we don't rest and, and we don't make ourselves still and try and hear the voice of God. And uh, that's all that is good. And there are certainly cycles of work and rest, as we've already seen demonstrated in Genesis. But this whole idea of worship is actually something you are doing. You are putting your some effort into it, as opposed to the the concept of worship that the mystery schools will often put forth, which is meditation. And I mean, transcendental meditation or Eastern kind of meditation where you clear your mind, where you're opening your feelings and you are trying to you know, become one with the world, um, as, a, as they popularly say, uh, become one with the universe or one with everything, or just to empty yourself and um, experience the rest of life around you. Um, that is a much more passive type of worship. And it's not what is being put forth here in the Hebrew. Yeah. yeah. So for this specific spot, yeah, I would definitely agree there. And then there certainly are times we are committed to empty ourselves. I mean, that's exactly what Christ did when he came, uh, he emptied himself. And so there's one aspect of that that is still upright, if you will. Um, But here we're definitely talking about serving because the other word that I would also say you could throw in here is slaving, right? It's, it's, it's slavery is also that same concept of uh, of being an evid, being a slave or a servant and which what comes out of a slave or servant is service, right? And so right. that that concept is right here in the midst of it. But what's important, even on top of that, is we got to realize this is before the fall. Service and work, those are things that are very healthy and very good and very much a part of God's plan. He has Adam working, serving before there is a fall. And so we we kind of got this wrong idea uh, sometimes in in a way of life that we think, you know, our work is because of sin. Like, no, work, good work that's from Adonai, good work that's from the Lord. It's actually a part of the purpose of our lives, of what he wants us to do. And that second part, um, likewise, of what it says, you know, you talked about the, I I guess it's Shamar is the root part of it. yeah. Well, let me just say before we get there, we should expect there to be work in the right. afterlife. Right, right. Because as you rightly pointed out, it was something God instituted before sin. It was a good part of life in the garden. And if we're returning to paradise, which is what this whole you know millennium and, and on into the eternal state is about, is returning us to the, the paradise that God intended, 
then we're going to have work again. Um, it's going to be in a different form, I think, usually, because we're going to be reigning with Christ. You know, the saints are said to to rule with him and ruling or governing is a kind of work. Um, but it will not be laborious. It will not be painful. It will not be sweat inducing in the way that it is now, because that's part of the curse. Yeah, that that big word there is toil. Um, And I have not looked up to see what the Hebrew word of it, but I am pretty positive that the word toil is actually a different word than our our word that we're talking about here with the the Avadah. So the toil piece, the toil aspect, the parts of our jobs, you know, the the Monday feeling that we all know so well, (laughs) that part, that part doesn't come around until after the snake does his business in the garden later. And so that's an important distinction that we all need to make in our own hearts and start discerning between what things in our lives are toil and what things are true service. There's another word here before we uh, fast forward. I actually, we actually roll back. So the translation I'm looking at right here says, and that God uh, put the man or put him in the garden. And that's an interesting translation for the word in the Hebrew that's actually used there. So um, the word that's used here has the same root as uh, the name Noah. So Noah, which is the the noon and the chet, that root is really about rest as well. So it's like he rested him in the garden to work. And that's that's an odd thing to put together, right? Like it's like he rested him in the garden to do service. And to keep it, which we'll we'll start talking about here in a moment with the well, it just shows you how beautiful life was before the fall, that we could be working and it could still be an overall state of of rest and and you're not gonna feel exhausted and tired by what you do. Yeah. I mean, there's it's a great commentary there, especially we talk about generation generation oh, let's try that in English, uh, generational differences, right? We talk about the millennials of which I'm like barely apart. <laughs> I'm like on the edge. Um, yeah, they always talk about, you know, I want a job where I feel fulfilled. And like, that's the, the, the mantra, like of our, our whole uh, generation. And really that's, that's, that's at its heart, kind of what God wants for everyone as well, for us to have a job or work that fulfills, we feel like, like actually fulfills our, those holes in our lives that, uh, that we feel that only Adonai can feel, but because the job is going to come from him. But that whole desire to really grab hold of work that is fulfilling is exactly what we're seeing here in verse 15. It's, uh, we see Adam getting that from God. Yeah, indeed. All right, go ahead and talk to us about keeping or guarding the garden. Yeah, so I like I, I like uh, to translate it when I see that those uh, letters there, the shin, mem, and, and resh, which is uh, the base part of it for safeguarding or safekeeping, and um, that that concept of to keep. I, I think. Um, when we when we try to think about what that's like, I, I like to look at the the illustration of soccer, right? When you have a goalie, the goalie's whole purpose is to keep the goal. That, that's why they also call it a goalkeeper, right? And that concept of you're guarding it to make sure nothing 
intrudes that's not supposed to be there, right? In soccer, it's a soccer ball, like making sure the other team's soccer ball does not get into your net. You're safeguarding the net. Um, that that concept is very much uh, like the picture that I see when I think of that word, but also like just keeping something in safekeeping like a like an actual safe would do, right? It's It's supposed to limit what can enter in with the purpose of being discerning between the things that are going to be harmful to whatever you're protecting or the things that are going to be um, just beneficial for it or are supposed to be there, authorized to be there. And so we see all of that happening right now in the garden. And I want to connect that to Shabbat because just a couple of episodes ago, I finished up a series on the Sabbath. When the Lord tells Israel to keep the Shabbat, he uses the imperative form of that word shamar, um, which I think is shamor. Yeah. Imperative, by the way, just a grammar term meaning command. He's com- you're commanding or telling someone to do something. But he tells them to keep or guard the Shabbat. Um, so if you want to please God, one of the ways you can do that is to guard that day. Don't let other things get in the way of it, um, which is something a lot of folks, even who, even people who, are trying to keep the Sabbath, aren't always guarding it as carefully as they could be. And I think God is serious about that, you know, just as he was serious about Adam guarding the garden. And this same word, I think we could probably apply to the next chapter to the introduction of the serpent or the Nachash, because it was Adam's responsibility to protect that garden from any enemies, you know, in any form, and mm-hmm. when that Nechash started to speak against God, the red light, you know, the warning light should have gone off in Adam's mind and he should have understood, uh-uh, this is an enemy. I need to shamar. Right. He didn't right. do that. Right. And for me, like uh, it, just my background as a security engineer for computer systems, like that's actually what that whole realm is 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 secure like securing the perimeter doing all those kinds of things that's what guards do for facilities one moment while my my son is yelling at me (laughs) not a problem this is real life these things happen we got families to to deal with and they will not uh leave us alone necessarily long enough to do a show like this let me go ahead and keep going with a few thoughts here when god told him to uh to keep and guard the garden. That was a part of the the blessing, I believe, that God was giving because he was putting man in charge of not only the whole earth, all of the animals. uh, We're at the top of the hierarchy and we're in command over uh, all of the other living creatures upon the earth. But he was also um, telling Adam, you know, you have a, a duty And sometimes we think of duty as being a negative word um, when it's not necessarily. Uh, It can actually give meaning to life. It can actually bring purpose when you have, if it comes from the right place, I should say, uh, when you have an objective. So, of course, God knew what objective was needed. He was the creator. He knows everything and how it should be. So, Um, So he gave this duty to us, which is yes, we don't have the garden anymore. We've lost paradise, but we have a duty now to our individual homes and to our circles of influence to tend them and to guard them 
just as Adam would have done in his circle, uh, which was originally paradise. So uh, I, I think that this and the other components of the blessing that God gave to Adam, they all still apply to us, like be fruitful and multiply, which we will read about here again in a second, because that's repeated in chapter two, I think. Um, those things extend to us still today um, because we are, are all part of Adam. We come from Adam. Um, every single one of us is an offspring of that one man and his wife. So uh, we are really no different from him in terms of what God wants for us and what God expects from us. Let's keep reading in chapter two, starting at verse 16. Yahweh Elohim commanded the man saying, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. All right, I'm going to stop there because this is an important segment. Don't want to gloss over it. Um, there was not only a duty given, but a boundary that was drawn. And it was a very small thing. It wasn't a difficult thing to avoid eating from these two trees. Well, from this one tree, excuse me. So it was only one thing that Adam couldn't do. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of things he didn't even think about doing. It just wasn't even in his imagination at all. Um, he would, I don't know if it was even possible to, to die at that point. Uh, what if he had cast himself down from a tall tree? These are weird, weird thoughts that I've had before, but you know, before the fall, before death entered in, could Adam have just dropped himself from a really high tree and, and been okay, survived that or, or jumped off of a, a mountain? <laughs> Not that there was one in the garden, but you know, somewhere in the world, there was a mountain he could have gotten to. Could he have jumped off of it and been fine? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but those things probably weren't even things that crossed his mind. But now God says, don't eat of this tree. And suddenly there is an imagination of what would it be like if I did eat from this tree? What he may not have even been considering before now suddenly is going to be in his mind. He's going to ruminate on it. I think this ties into some of the things that Paul says in the book of Romans about how the law brings the consciousness of sin. And if he hadn't known the law, if there hadn't been a rule book, he, he wouldn't have been able to trespass. Uh, so he wouldn't have even understood the idea of sin. So there had to be a boundary. There had to be a rule first to be broken before uh, that would even be a thing uh, that, that trespassing, trespassing, excuse me, um, I said it in the Southern way, I, I need to watch my tongue, that trespassing would even be an issue. So this one simple rule is put into place. And, you know, we know the story. He can't keep even that little thing. I think it's important to understand that God sets the boundaries. And although we are granted a, a lot of control, an enormous amount of control, uh, Adam being granted the authority over all of the earth, being told to subdue it, being told to guard against enemies. You know, he was not only a, a worker, uh, an artisan, maybe even a, a craftsman, but he was a soldier to keep and to guard. Um, but one thing that he was not given is permission to set the boundaries, to, to make up the rules for himself. So God did that. Um, and then it was just man's duty to follow the rules. 
Now, oftentimes when you hear this tree being spoken of, it's called the tree of knowledge, but that's not really what it is. Knowledge is not bad. Knowledge in and of itself has no moral component to it at all. That seems to be the word that I'm using a lot today, component. Um, but it is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's what you do with knowledge and what it pertains to that makes it uh, either a problem or makes it okay. So this tree was going to give the knowledge of good and evil, which isn't something that Adam didn't have yet. He could not distinguish good and evil for himself. What was evil was only what God had declared as evil, which in this case, so far, is only one thing. Um, it was evil to go against God, uh, to break his commands. And that wasn't something that Adam had done yet. Um, and so he was not discerning it for himself. What we will see is that uh, the Nachash wants Adam to have that ability. He wants Adam and Eve to be able to distinguish. We'll get to that in the next chapter. But um, just be aware when you talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it is knowledge of good and evil. It's a moral thing. It's not just knowledge in general. So, right. And there's there's a couple of things I would have to add to here, too. When we talk about knowing something from a Hebrew perspective, like in English, we, we definitely have this thing where we we think of it as the same as or synonymous with information like digesting of information. But that is very far from how it is in a Hebrew context. Like when you talk about the word no from a Hebrew context, it's more experiential. That's why it'll later say that Adam knew his wife. It's talking about he experienced his wife. And lo and behold, Cain and Abel show up a little bit afterwards, right? And so when we talk about the, the knowledge of good and evil, this is the experience of good and evil. And that, that is a huge deal in a, a very different way and, and context of, of a concept of looking at it as to what they are taking from this tree. And, and then the other piece of that is like, uh, you know, sometimes we, we think, oh, like this was an easy thing to resist this tree. But just like Mr. Watchman here has already talked about, like once you have that law put out, the the feelings that make you want to overstep that boundary, like they intensify, but it's not just that, that this tree, it's gotta be something that is, as it writes, pleasing to the eye. It's not just any old kind of tree where you walk past and you're like, this is a tree that when you looked at it, it actually was a beautiful looking tree. And it was something that actually was desirable and that stirred up desire inside the people who were looking at it because you get the idea that you know neither, neither these neither um, Adam nor Eve are really looking at the tree all that hard and then in addition to that I kind of think of the tree of life as probably another name I, I'm just giving this name and you guys can just throw it away if you want but I think of it as just the tree of knowledge of good because that is what births life in us. When we're seeking and chasing after good, that brings new life into us in our own walk. And so you have this mixture, this mi mixing of kinds that's also present in this tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's not just a good tree, it's, it's good and evil. 
Um, and that the mixing of kinds we find out later in the tour is, is a big no, no. And so then you got to wonder even more. So how did this tree get here to this place? Um, some would some would say that it wasn't actually Adonai that planted this particular tree, but the enemy actually planted it very similar uh, to how we see in Jesus's parable about the wheat and the tares, where something gets sown in Adonai's garden that he did not plant. Hmm. Interesting. I had not thought about that. God had to have something there to test Adam. I think that God, even if it was the enemy that planted it. God allowed it because he needed to have that tool there um, mm-hmm. to use it, to progress the story, so to speak. Right. Right. But yeah, it may have been, I liked your point that the knowing is more experiential though. I think that's important. God says to Adam in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Did Adam die that day? What is God talking about? That, you know, this is a question I've heard so many different answers to it. So I, I've always heard, like from my upbringing, it was like, oh, he died, like they died spiritually that day. Both he and Eve, they died spiritually. And that's what happened on that day. And then eventually their body also died. In other texts, like uh, you look at some extra biblical texts and they say explicitly that like the whole idea of a day being as a thousand years to God actually is in play there because literally in that regard, if you're taking a day for God as a thousand years, that would mean that Adam would have to die before he reached the age of a thousand, which indeed is exactly what ends up happening. He does die in that day as far as God is concerned. In fact, he died 70 years exactly short of a thousand, which 70 is an important number. Right. Right. And so I've heard all of those things. Um, There was another one that is escaping me at the moment where, oh, yes, I remember. So like in the in the Hebrew, there's this uh, special kind of of verb form that is used when when you want to say something is surely happening. uh, It's similar to other things where, you know, you have something a place like the holy of holies. They basically have this in the verb context as well, where you make something certain, certainly happening. And so the way it normally looks, um, if you were to like try to translate it super literally when it says you'll surely die, it would be like deaths, you will die. Um, Or dying, you will die. Like that's that's how like ominous it sounds like scary like crypt keeper like deaths you will die like that's the kind of language that's actually being used there but if you if you think about that though in the literal like deaths plural right that you would die we read in in the book of revelation we say you know this is the second death right we all have that first death which is what we're talking about when we, we're referring to adam dying in in the day when you talk about a day being a thousand years, he dies that first death. But there's also a a second death uh, component uh, to that, like that that is 
in play. Now, I'm not meaning to say there that Adam definitely won't be in the resurrection or anything along those lines, although there are actually like lots of the sectors of faith that feel that way. They feel like because he was perfect, he couldn't be redeemed. And I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to that idea because I just believe the blood of Yeshua is able to cleanse all of the humans and redeem first Adam as second Adam. But um, that that is another idea that some have as well. So I just want to make sure we acknowledge that, too. It's clearly called that in Scripture. Um, I do believe, though, that the spiritual death was one part of this because we're told in other places that we need to be brought to life spiritually. Um, in fact, it's Yeshua's spirit that does that. He is called the quickening spirit. In other words, right. he takes something that's dead and he brings it to life. How did we die? You know, when did that happen? We've all inherited that from Adam. We've inherited his dead spirit. So we all start out that way. Now, it's not that we, we all just sin at some point in our childhood. And before that we were perfect. No, we had a dead spirit. That's why we're selfish. That's why kids are so you know evil inherently you don't have to teach them to be bad they're just bad and you have to teach them to be good because they have a dead spirit it's not connected to the living god uh, whose spirit always wants what's best for everybody else it's always selfless instead of self-centered but no we come out self-centered and that's tough for us i mean uh you know i've i've heard so many times in my life where people feel like oh we're just we're everyone's inherently good but bad things happen to them and then you know, so on and so forth. But that's another spot where I'm like, eh, I'm not so that's not really what I see, like uh, in, in the in the writings and and in people like, uh, you know, anybody who I've heard that it, it feels like people are just inherently good. Like as I'm thinking through, I was like, a lot of those people have not had children of their own. And so they haven't really seen it firsthand. <laughs> you don't really have to, you don't really have to like urge your kids to do something that's like not, that is contrary uh, to doing things right or upright or good. Uh, they just do. And then, you know, some of that's just ignorance and some of it is just, man, that, that feeling of de- that desire of wanting to see what will happen uh, no matter what, like, that that's another piece of it as well yeah and the universe absolutely revolves around them <laughs> you have to teach them otherwise oh man the whole planet thought it was the center of the universe for so long so of course our kids come out feeling that way <laughs> <laughs> dude this planet is the center but that's a whole other <laughs> oh man oh man so uh let's keep going with verse 18 then Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I like how you said naked. Mm-hmm. Naked. That's, that's the Southern way of doing it. Oh, yeah. That Texas is going to come out of me a lot. <laughs> oh, it's okay. In this section, we have Eve being brought out of Adam. And before this point, Adam was either a male in the normal sense or he was more androgynous. Do you have any thoughts as to which? This is an interesting question to me. Um, it's one I've wrestled with a lot because, I, I mean, when you think about when you think about Jesus and the person of Jesus, right, as the second Adam, you kind of see some similar elements there because it's from Mary, right, that some pieces of that, like her, is a part of him. And just like it is with each of us, we have a part of our from our mother and our father and so forth. Like what what he was before. Um, I believe in, in some ways has to parallel what we should be expect to be on the other side, but with the knowledge of having been a a male or a female in this li- this side of life. So yeah, I, I'm not even sure I'm, I'm sold on either side there, but this idea would explain a lot of things. Like uh, I guess when you look at our Oh, I'm going to mess up all the sciencey terms. You guys have to excuse me. I'm a poor scientist, but I'm a good engineer sometimes. <laughs> um, so like the chromosomes that happen, right? We have the two, two X's for female, and then you got the X and the Y for the male. And when you look at those, like in like a real picture of what an, a Y chromosome looks like versus an X, like it's like the Y is just missing a piece of what's on the X. And so it's like a part has been stolen from it, very much mirroring what we see in Adam here, that a piece of him was removed and that the woman is the one that actually has the full fullness of what the chromosome, a wholeness of chromosomes, if you will. Like, so it looks like two whole X's, whereas the Y is more like a, a X that got its leg cut off. Like, um, and so there's some aspects of that that makes me think, you know, whatever he was, it wasn't like, I, I don't know that it was either male or female precisely. Like it, it probably was something if anything, closer to a female in some aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of lean towards that myself for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is everybody starts out female in the womb. Mm-hmm. Um, the male component, like, component again, I'm using that word, the male aspects um, don't emerge until later. You start off really female. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's what scientists say i mean i haven't looked for myself but, but supposedly that's what's going on in there uh, also the fact that men have nipples is so weird to me yeah why would adam need that if we started out as really both male and female combined then it would make sense that there are still nipples because 
Adam would have been feeding his offspring that would have been produced asexually. Um, So he would have had to have those mammary glands. But when he got split, then that was no longer necessary. But God didn't change the appearance. He just left it as it was. Um, And the the breasts don't don't grow um, like they do in women in puberty. They just stay as they are in, in adolescence, you know, flat. But yeah. um, that's a weird concept. It really is strange to think that way. Um, but the the important part here, I think, that we have to talk about is the occult view of androgyny and how important it is to the mystery religions and, and the occultists. Because they are very, very interested in returning man to an androgynous state. Mm-hmm. In fact, let me read a couple of things, just a little excerpts from occult writings. Here's something from a Rosicrucianist. I think his name's Max Heindel. I'm not positive on that, but he says, uh, thus man ceased to be physically hermaphrodite and became unisexual. He can no longer create from himself physically as do the hermaphrodite plants or psychically as do the Elohim, that's God's, the male-female hierarchs in whose image he was originally made, and thus he occupies at the present time an unenviable intermediate position between the plant and the god. At one time, man was bisexual, male-female, and therefore each was able to propagate his species without assistance from anyone else. But one half of the creative force has been temporarily diverted, and it goes on. But um, he says, oh, let me read a later portion of the same quote, look into the future now through the perspective of the past and realize that your present unisexual condition is only a temporary phase of evolution and that in the future, this whole creative force must be turned upwards so that you may become a hermaphrodite spiritually. Okay. Uh, And then just to back that up, here's another quote from an occult source, uh, a website that I'm not even going to tell you what it is because I don't want to give them any traffic. (laughs) Uh, There is a long history of androgyny in occult and mystical writings. That is to say, the assertion that male and female properties were originally contained within one body. Some stories of androgyny refer to the gods and others to the early history of humankind. References to a race of androgynes which once inhabited the world occur in the myths of both East and West. In the Western tradition, this primordial androgyne, it's a hard word, androgyne, is to be found in the writings of certain of the Kabbalists, Gnostics, Neoplatonists, Swedenborgians, and the Theosophists. Well, there's a good list of all of the things you should avoid, okay? <laughs> versions of the occult. Here, Adam was an androgynous being whose fall from grace was marked by splitting into separate genders. Redemption occurs, okay, you hear that? Redemption occurs when the duality of gender is transcended and male and female are reunited in wholeness and completion. The occult importance often given to the sexual act by magicians is that momentarily orgasm mystically reunites separated souls and brings the participants closer to the absolute. The true joy of that union has less to do with the physical pleasure and more with the temporal spiritual integration of separate individuals in the original condition of the complete human. Okay, so some of you who've read my writings may have heard of the, the sacred marriage and that extends into a lot of different occult practices of, of unifying male and female in a, a kind of ritualistic ceremony um, that, that uses sex as the power source to, to accomplish the ritual, accomplish the magic. 
Um, that is a big thing in the occult. And as we read here, also reuniting the genders, a, a big thing. In, to the point that they actually consider it to be a form of redemption, <laughs> which is uh, very weird to me. But anyway, my point here is even if we started androgynous, God made the decision to split man into genders. And as the creator and the ruler, he gets to maintain that distinction for as long as he wants. Um, and he has not given us any indication that's ever going to change. It seems like a very permanent thing. So that is a good thing because God decided that was what was best. In fact, he said, it's not good yeah. for man to be alone. So God knew that it would be better for man to be in two genders that come together and assist each other and, and fill each other's, the gaps in each other's roles, uh, as opposed to being alone and reproducing asexually. And so we need to accept that as being the right way instead of what the occultists do saying, no, God shouldn't have done that. Let's go back to how it was originally because it was better that way. Right. Yeah. And that, and this is key. Like we have to see all of the areas here where some of, of the occultist ways mirror the things that are happening on the more righteous side of things with Yahweh. Um, you know, is there an aspect of androgyny that does keep going? I mean, on some levels, right, when you talk about what uh, what it means uh, when Jesus says that some become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Like, yes, that is actually what that is what um, is happening there. That's actually the true picture of, quote unquote, androgyny that or spiritual androgyny that should be held up at highly at, and, and be highly esteemed if you are able to actually be the bride of christ in such a way that where you can be um living living a a celibate, celibate that's the word i'm looking for thank you celibate lifestyle but with Christ and serving and and having that at the top of your list like that's more like what true spiritual androgyny would look like. And that's actually the same kind of feature we hear in uh, the description of the 144,000. Like it's not a coincidence that they're said to be virgins, right? Mm -hmm. 144,000 yeah. virgins, right? The, the way to that spiritual androgyny is not through sexual indulgence. It's actually the opposite. It's actually right. through sexual abstinence. And so it, that, that duality there is important to keep a hold and a grip on when you're trying to discern what what is righteous and what is just wickedness. Yeah, very good point. And I disagree greatly with the idea of, of the Catholic Church in creating rules for the priesthood um, mm -hmm. that enforce celibacy, because I think that lust is such a powerful force that you can't strong arm people into avoiding lust. They have to be spiritually mature enough to make that decision for themselves mm -hmm. and to, to really be ready to, to commit to that. Um, if you just try and lump everybody into that category, uh, you're going to end up with a lot of secretive sexual behaviors, which is what the Catholic church <laughs> has. Um, so that was wrong, but the idea behind it, right, you know, right. I think is, is 
very good. They want people to be like Paul. And Paul said, I wish everybody was as I am. He was celibate. He didn't, he never got married. He was serving the King. He was very in love with Yeshua. And, and that was his focus. Um, but he also said, it's better not to burn with lust. So if you can't right. control yourself in that way, then go ahead and get married. Right. Everybody's called to something. And I've even heard it gone to the extent that some call singleness, a spiritual gift, like, and that, that is a big deal, right? When we think about that concept, this is something that we here in the West especially do not uphold the way we should in, in our congregations and in, in, in our various like uh, meetings and things. Like we don't hold up the idea of a single, single person being uh, a good thing if they are really trying to be the bride of Christ in their life. That is something that actually is a spiritual gift and that would be good. But it, but again, that's not, you're not talking about that person being quote unquote alone because they have a husband and, and the way that they live their life and the way that they operate. And so having Christ as husband in your life is, is not the same scenario as what Adam was starting out um, as he started out in the beginning. Absolutely. Well, we've more than used up our time, so let's go ahead and stop there. And we're going to have to tackle chapter three next time. Ooh, tackle indeed. Yeah, we didn't even get as far as I thought, but that's all right. There's always so much to chew on. Oh, yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. And until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out. Watchmen out.